Guys, I'm excited. It's been too long. It's felt like an eternity for me. Haven't been able to do live stream for the past three days. We haven't done one since Saturday. Usually I do one every weekday. Haven't been able to do one. I've been sick, so we're back. We're in Ephesians chapter 4. Let's go there this morning. And we're going to see what the Lord has. We've already read verse 1 through 16. Just to recap, I just want to touch on some main points because that's going to lead right into this next section, which is 17 through 32. Okay. If my voice cracks, it's not puberty. I'm not 12. It's because I'm sick. So don't laugh. The Lord will bring just retribution. So in Ephesians 4, the first part, <clears throat> Paul's already told us to live a life that's worthy of the calling on our life. He tells us how to do that. In other words, model your life after Jesus and, and pursue unity. He's already talked about how we are one in the Spirit. We have the same God, same Savior, same Spirit, same salvation, same faith, same call, same baptism, all that. So he talks about how we have a lot in common. And the first half of chapter 4 is to promote unity in the body by magnifying Jesus in the mind of the church. Because when everyone is, is modeling their life after Jesus uh, in the church and everyone's going after him and pursuing him and he's the desire of their heart, when, when that's the case for the church, we're going to have unity because you're going to have common ambition, common purpose, common desire, right? <clears throat> common love, common character. And what Paul has emphasized already is, look, build up the body of Christ Right? Pursue maturity and um, speak the truth in love. And that's going to promote unity. And look at Jesus who descended into our world in order to ascend high in victory to give us gifts, the gifts of the apostles and evangelists and shepherds and prophets and teachers. Okay, so all these different ideas, okay, just to lay it out for you. What Paul is doing in chapter 4 is he's trying to promote unity in the church by saying, look at Jesus Look at the humility he demonstrated. Look at how high he ascended to give us gifts. He's given us gifts to build up the church. We're to build each other up, strengthen each other, speak the truth in love, and let's promote godly unity where everyone is serving one another and laying down their lives for each other, okay? So with that in the background of your mind, as you read this next section, okay, you really need to hang on to the idea of unity in the body. That's what Paul is after. But he's going to shift a little bit and pause. He's going to hit pause on the whole unity thing. And now he's going to say, look, in verse 17, Now this I say, and I testify in the Lord. I'm a witness to it, okay? That you must, okay, the title of this video is How You Should Not Live If You Are a Christian. This is not the way you should live. This is what Paul's going to touch on in verse 17 through 20. He's going to show us how we should not live. In other words, if you live like this, this is you wasting your life, whether a believer or not. Okay, so if you, re if you read verse 17 through 19, and Paul's telling us not to do these things, if you choose to do it, that's going to lead to a life of um, fruitless, vain ambition that amounts to nothing. So verse 17, now this I say and I testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles or unbelievers, okay, this is not about Jew or non-Jew, but for the sake of explanation, just put unbelievers there. Don't, don't live like the unbelievers do. 
in the futility of their minds. Now that word right there, it's speaking to fruitlessness. You could say it's vain, the vanity of their minds, the fruitlessness of their minds, the, the, the lack of productivity, the purposelessness of their minds. It amounts to nothing. It produces nothing of eternal value. The minds of unbelievers um, doesn't mean they're not smart and they can't think through things and they can't know truth and they can't love and they can't know morality. The point is their minds don't result in or create a life that amounts to anything eternally. A life that's rooted in an unbelieving mind, that life does nothing uh, eternally. There's no productive fruit that's born out of that kind of life. When it's all said and done and we stand before God, okay? It might be offensive to you guys. I don't care. I don't care, okay? The point is, Paul's saying, don't live like what you used to. Now, that's interesting. He's assuming the Gentile, <clears throat> the Ephesian church, used to live a certain way. And he's saying, look at the unbelievers. You used to be a part of that. You used to live like them and talk like them and joke like them and watch what they watch and, and engage in what they engaged in. Don't do that because you used to walk in a, a way of life that was unproductive and useless and fruitless. There was no purpose to it. And that's how some of you guys feel each and every day. You wake up. There's no purpose to what I'm doing. Just clock in, clock out, do the same thing. Go to sleep, wake up, do it again the next day. You, you feel like there's no real value or purpose to what you're doing. And I can't say either way. The point is, if you're an unbeliever disconnected from God, who gives purpose to your life, if you're not in relationship with him, then your mind and your life is going to amount to nothing. When it's all said and done and you stand before the living God, it'll be a fruitless life. There'll be an unproductive life that amounts to vanity. And so he's saying their minds are fruitless, not even just their life, because the life is sourced in the mind, right? The mind affects the lifestyle. How you live is a result of how you think, right? So if I touch the mind, I change the life. Well, if my mind is unproductive, if my mind is fruitless and has vain thoughts and, and vain imaginations and only dwells on things that, that are evil and dark and, and useless, then my life will follow that way of thinking. Uh, that, yeah, that way of thinking. And Paul is saying, don't walk like them because they're, they're, they're vain in their minds, their imaginations. So notice how the lifestyle of the unbeliever is connected to their vain way of thinking. Their mind is not governed by truth. Their mind is not governed by eternal, um, the eternal word of God and the ways of Jesus. Their, their, their mind is not governed by the spirit so their life will not be either. But if you get the mind in subjection to Jesus and we're given a new mind at, at the moment we're saved, if you get a new mind, your life changes, okay? Your life follows the way that you think. So this is the point. Don't live the way you used to. Well, how did we used to live? How do unbelievers live as smart as they can be, as as you know, as, as moral as they can be and as loving as they might try to be? How do unbelievers live when it's all said and done? Well, they are darkened in their understanding. Their reasoning faculties are actually corrupted by sin. The, the, the eyes of their heart through which you see God or not, right? That's the spiritual sight. They don't have that. They're spiritually blind to God and his truth and the gospel and what Christ has done. They're actually blind to that. Now, 
Watch what Paul says about that. They're darkened in their understanding. Their way of reasoning through life, the way they understand the world and what's happening, it's being processed through a sinful filter, through a, through a filter that is governed by the enemy in, in darkness. Now, that might sound harsh at first. I don't freaking care. The point is, these people in unbelief steeped in darkness, not only are their minds governed by sin, their reasoning, their understanding, their way of filtering thoughts and ideas and situations, that is also governed by the darkness that comes from Satan and sin. Okay, so they're alienated from the life of God. This is what we used to be. And Paul's already touched on in chapter 2, remember what you used to be. You used to be foreigners and strangers. We were not a part of the covenants and the promises. We were not in the nation of Israel. We had no relation to God. But now in Christ, we've been brought near. Okay, so these people, these unbelievers, they're, they're, they're understanding and the eyes of their hearts, they're blind, darkened. Like they're walking around every day. They're just walking around a dark room with no light to guide them. They're alienated from the life of God. They're cut off, separated from God who is life, who gives eternal life. They're separated from him because of their sin. Because sin cannot dwell in the presence of a holy God. Darkness cannot dwell in the presence of light. One's going to overtake the other, right? And so the light of God, who is perfect righteousness and holiness... Any darkness, any sin in his presence is not compatible. It gets obliterated. And so they're cut off from God who is life and light by their sin. This is just the description of not just how we used to live, but think of any unbeliever in your life. Think about the, the, the horror stories we see on the news, on front headlines, right? Every day there's something wicked happening. Something absolute, absolutely disgusting going on in the world that we're like, how can someone be so evil? How can there be such a level of depravity and darkness? And here you go. Like, here's your answer. They're separated from God. They have no life. They live in sin. Their mind is governed by darkness. They understand the world and reason through life in a sinful way. What do you expect? You know what I mean? Like, what do you expect? They're alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them. And then you go, oh, see, they're ignorant. It's not their fault. No, watch. The ignorance is a result of something. Their ignorance, it's willful because it's a result of their hardness of heart. In other words, these people who are currently darkened in their understanding, they've chosen, decided to harden their heart against the truth of God's word. They've rejected the gospel. They don't want to believe. They've heard it. They've entertained it. They've thought about it. Eh, I don't want to believe that. I don't have reason. I'm not going to pursue, you know, the, the reasons why people believe in research. I'm going to just treat it like it's just another fairy tale. And they're hardened. When you harden your heart enough, you fall into deeper and deeper depravity. You get into a deeper, deeper life of wickedness and sin. <clears throat> Along the way of a person's life, God gives opportunities to believe the gospel. He'll send a, a pastor. He'll send us to your everyday believer. He'll send a billboard with the chosen on it where you go, is Jesus the real deal? Meh. You know, any, any little breadcrumbs that would lead you to God. People reject that enough. You know, they're being willfully ignorant of the truth. They don't want it. They don't want anything to do with it. 
and their sin separates them from God when God is trying to lead them back to himself. This is the life of an unbeliever. Here's how to waste your life. Live darkened in your, in your understanding. Live separated from God. Be ignorant to the truth. Like harden your heart against the gospel. That's how you waste your life. That's how you end up in deeper darkness. That's how you end up in the kind of depression that overtakes you and leaves you purposeless and, and you just you go on a psycho, you know, rampage. This is this is how you get there, okay? Is you continually reject the gospel and just live in sin. Whatever craving you have, follow it, right? Whatever desire you have, whatever sinful passion you have, yeah, just give in to it. That's how you waste your life and that's how you end up in deeper darkness. But this is how you should, you should look at this and go, I don't want to live like that. Something inside of you should go, I don't want this. If you're nodding your head going, yeah, I love this. You're a sicko. But if you're shaking your head going, I don't want this. That's a good sign. This is how believers should not live. I should not let my understanding be darkened. Right? I should not wander away from the, from the God who has saved me. I should not live a life that's, that's contrary to his will, right? I shouldn't harden my heart to the truth and, and harden my heart to the, the spirit of God convicting me. And when he's telling me not to do something, I do it anyway. I should listen. I should be sensitive to the leading of the spirit. Okay, so verse 19, they've become callous. You know when you work out enough and you get calluses on your hands? That's the idea here. Their heart has progressively become more and more hard and callous, so that there's another layer of, of hardness to break through with each opportunity they have to hear the gospel. When they reject it, there's another layer of hardness that someone's going to have to break through. And they're hardening themselves. That's, what, that's what's happening here. It's like Pharaoh. They're choosing to harden their own heart <clears throat> against the truth. They become callous. They weren't callous to start out with. This is something that happens over time. Read Romans chapter 1. Now watch this. As a result of their callous rejection of the gospel and refusal of God's offer of peace, as a result of that, they've given themselves up not to God for salvation. They're not going, here I am. I'm yours. They've given themselves up to sensuality. This is another level of sin. This is wicked. You know, let's pull up the word sensuality. It has more of a sexual connotation to it. He said sex. Ban him. Ban me. Okay, the word sensuality here literally means, oh, thanks, even more complicated words, licentiousness, wantonness. It's like, just give me a simple definition. Biblehub.com. My goodness. When you explain a word with a harder word. Sensuality, let's just go. The enjoyment, expression, pursuit of sexual pleasure. There you go. Told you it has a sexual connotation to it. That's the idea here. So instead of the person going... I'm yours, God. You made me. You give me life. You sustain me. You give me breath. You give me salvation. You, you gave me your son. You're, you're worthy. You're the only one that's deserving of my life. Here I am. Instead, they're laying themselves down at the altar of sexual pleasure. 
and they're going here. They're giving themselves up as an offering to any sexual craving, any sinful desire they have. And they're going, oh, I'm giving me up to you. Use me, abuse me, whatever you want to do. Whatever craving, desire, or passion they have. I, I know that image is a little like, eh. But the point is you should see that and go, I don't want that. Anytime we give in to sinful desire that is contrary to God's word, right? You're forfeiting yourself over, almost um, submitting yourself as a, as a willful slave to that desire. Saying, here, desire, use and abuse me. Whatever consequences come my way, I don't care. I just want the pleasure. I want the enjoyment. I want the temporary gratification that comes with, with disobeying God and living in sin in this moment. I want it. And you give yourself up. That's the idea here. Instead of giving yourself up to God and saying, here I am, Lord, I'll listen to you. I obey your voice. Because you lead me into life. You, you follow what leads you into death and darkness. So these people, unbelievers, who reject the gospel time and time again, they've given themselves up to sensuality, desire, sinful passion. They are greedy to practice every kind of impurity. What? Now, I know what it means to be like greedy for money and greedy for fame greedy for status and influence but when you are greedy for impurity what does that even mean like when you are so obsessed with sin and satisfying every desire of your your imagination you're actually greedy for more darkness it's like here's the idea it's these people aren't satisfied with the level of sin they're currently in, they need to go deeper. They need to be, they need to be, you know, even more depraved. Like this sin isn't enough. How do we get more dark? They're greedy for another level of impurity. They're not just waiting and like eager to practice sin. They're looking for opportunities to like do worse things. And they, I mean, you look at our world, you look at the news headlines and you go, yep. Yeah, I see that. I see that, like, what happened in Texas, which I, I'm still in unbelief. I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old. You can imagine how <clears throat> close to home that hits. You wonder how people get there. Here's your answer. Here's your answer. They reject the life God gives. They reject the truth time and time again, and they get into deeper and deeper darkness with each rejection. Now, you and I, as believers now in Christ, we used to be in that darkness. Praise God, he pulled us out, right, by his grace. He pulled us out and brought us into the light so that I'm no longer susceptible and vulnerable to that kind of depravity. I am still tempted by sin, but praise God, I have a new mind, a new heart, a new way of life, a new nature that is like, I'm filled with the Spirit, right? I'm a new creation in Christ, and I'm in the light. And I'm in life. I, I am now in a place where I'm just, I'm opposed to those things. So when you look at the darkness of our world, you can actually make sense of it now. And go, this is what happens when the devil and his demons rule people's lives and communities instead of God's truth. And this isn't God's issue. This is people rejecting the truth. God is sending truth. God is sending his spirit. God is sending the gospel. 
But when people time and time again reject, 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 you get to the place where you're 18 and you decide, you know what? I'm going to go to an elementary school. And that's the darkness that overtakes a life. And I don't know the guy personally. He's gone now. But the point is, this is where you find yourself. Praise God we're not susceptible to that now. We've been brought into the light. Now look at verse 20. That's how you should not live. You should not live willfully ignorant, rejecting the eternal life God offers. You shouldn't reject the terms of peace that Jesus brings through his death and resurrection. Like you shouldn't be darkened in your understanding and be willfully blind to the truth and filter you know, your understanding of the world through sin. You shouldn't live in the darkness of your own sinful cravings. You should not do that. Okay, now watch. Verse 20. But that is not the way you learned Christ. That's not the way you learned Christ. In other words, look, you and I used to be like this. Praise God we learned, became aware of a different way of life. When sin is all you know, and the culture is like encouraging it, and society's like applauding it, and you got parades for it, and you got entire holidays dedicated to purely sin, and you know no other way of life because you're so steeped into it, right? To discover Christ and a new way of life, it's liberating. It's liberating to go, I was so blind. I was so dark. I was so separated from God by my own sin and darkness. And the world applauded it. And, so, and I looked to culture to like affirm me and be like, okay, I'm, I'm doing the right thing. I looked on Instagram, everyone else is. Like I look on YouTube, everyone else is in this depravity, so I'm good. Well, culture and society are not a good standard for what is true or what is good. Culture and society don't decide whether or not you and I get into the kingdom of heaven when we die. That's God's, that's God's verdict. That's his prerogative. God decides who gets into my kingdom. He, he decides that, right? And so rather than look to the culture and society to say, am I living a good life? I should look to the Lord and say, Father, am I living a life? You define good. You define love. You're the essence of light and goodness and love. Am I living a life that is good? And not, I don't let the world guide my way of life and society. If they're steeped in darkness and everyone's just patting each other on the back, with, with more sin. Why would I look to that to affirm my way of life? Forget that. That's not how you learned Jesus. You learned a different way of life that is contrary to everything that you and I, everything you and I learned growing up in this society, in this sick culture that affirms all this sin and all this depravity. When you come to Christ and he opens your eyes to the ways of light and love and peace and hope and joy, sadly, it's contrary to everything, almost everything, you learned growing up in sin. It's contrary. You have to unlearn so much because your mind, right, determines your life. How you think results in how you live, right? So if my lifestyle is a product of the way that I think, then I need to change the way that I think. The problem is I can't just decide to change how I think when the way that I think and reason through life is governed by sin since I'm separated from God who is life, since I'm separated from truth. Instead, the gospel comes in and I, and I hear the truth that Jesus came into our world 
to live the perfect life that none of us ever could. We were all imperfect. We've all failed in some capacity. Jesus goes, that's a problem because sin, failure, separates us from the God who is perfection and holy. The standard of God, if you want to get into heaven, is perfection. So Jesus comes down and he meets that standard for us. And he meets his own perfect law for us in our place. So that on the cross, Jesus, when he willingly lays down his life and he's nailed to a cross and arrested and he dies on that bloody cross, he lays down his life to pay for our sin, to handle our darkness, to take away the debt that we owe that separates us from God. He takes it. He pays it in full. And he, his whole, his life, he, Jesus is sufficient. And so on the cross, he deals with our darkness and the debt and the, and the punishment, the penalty that our sin deserves. And he is separated from the Father instead of us. And so on the cross, Jesus does die in our place. But then he resurrects three days later in the power of God to show that God is offering us life that is past physical death. He's offering us life that conquers death. Death doesn't have to have the final say over you if you trust in Jesus who has died for you, who lived the perfect life you and I never could, who paid our debt, who took our sin, and who raised to life and conquered death for us. And he's seated at the right hand of the Father right now in heaven, waiting to come back. If you trust in him, you can learn a new way of life. You can have the light of Christ shine into your heart and you're forgiven of all your sin in one shot. God declares you righteous and holy and forgiven. All the darkness you've ever in, engaged in and you ever will, it's wiped away. Which is not an excuse to live in sin. The point is, at the moment you believe in Christ, he gives you a new mind, a new way of reasoning through life. Your understanding, it finally ascends to the level of, oh, this is true, this is light, this is the ways of God, and now, you're actually capable of living out the ways of God because you have a mind that desires to. You have a heart that wants to, right? So a lot of people think Christianity is just about doing a bunch of things you don't want to do. Well, sometimes, sometimes I, I do the things that are good when I don't even want to do them really. This is just a story of life. I don't always want to do what's good for me, but I do it anyway. It's called discipline. It's called self-control, right? And so same thing when we come into the kingdom of God, I won't always want to do everything God calls me to. Sometimes I got to tell the flesh, shut up, sit down, because the spirit of God is ruling this person. And I'm not going to give in to what my flesh wants. I want what God wants. And you lay yourself down instead of giving yourself up to sin. So the point is you didn't learn Christ like this, right? Assuming you've heard about him. And assuming you were taught in Jesus, watch this, as the truth is in Jesus. So Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life in John 14. Jesus says, there's no truth apart from me. I am the exclusive way into the kingdom of heaven. Back to the Father, I'm the exclusive truth. Now, Paul's kind of adding to that, clarifying rather, and saying, look, you're taught the truth in Jesus. Outside of him, you don't have the truth of salvation. You don't have the truth of, you know, righteousness and redemption and, and the way to get into the kingdom of God. You're operating in sin. You're operating in falsehood. That doesn't mean you can't know anything that's true when you're separated from God, okay? The point is, 
the message of salvation to get into the kingdom of God, it's in Jesus. When you believe that truth and you're taught by Jesus and you learn what the gospel is saying and you believe in it, it's your choice. When you believe in the gospel, you're given a new mind that is now governed by the ways of God and the truth of Jesus. Whereas your mind used to be, your mind used to be all distorted and corrupted by sin and whatever fleshly desires and passions we had. There was a distortion there. That's why God gives us a new mind. Okay. Now here's what Paul's saying. You didn't learn Jesus like that. If you ever meet a Christian that affirms sin, and they're like, look, Jesus died for us so you can live in sin. It's fine. It's okay. If you ever meet a Christian like that, you should question whether or not they really believe in Christ. You should really question, like, I don't know if you, I don't know if you actually believe in the historical biblical gospel. If you're affirming sin and you're okay with what Jesus had to die for, I don't know if we're following the same God. If there is such a thing as Christianity that affirms sin and tolerates it and approves of it, it's not Christianity anymore. That is something else. That's like a distorted version of the truth, which is no longer the truth. The truth is, if you belong to Christ, sin is no longer something you can excuse. Now, there is forgiveness, and we have an advocate, and I can come to God in repentance knowing that you already forgave me before I ever did this, but that should not lead me to justify sin. If Jesus becomes a way for me to excuse my sin, there's an issue with your theology. But when Christ becomes um, the one who forgives my sin so that I can live free from it, well, well, now you're starting to get somewhere. Because Jesus didn't just purchase our salvation, right? He purchased our sanctification. He doesn't just purchase your way out of sin so you can live however you want. He purchases your ability to live free from it. To live free from sin. Okay? So here's what Paul's saying. If you really heard the gospel and you were really taught in Christ, then you learned this. Verse 22. You learned to put off your old self, which belongs to your former way of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. We got to freaking unpack that. As a believer, I am no longer what I used to be. I am a new creation in Christ. I have a new nature. I have a new identity. I have a new standing before God. I'm holy and I'm righteous and I'm perfect because I'm covered in Christ's perfection, right? So I have a new everything, a new life, a new nature. I'm created new in Jesus through my faith in him. When I trust in him, right? My old self, which I died to, if you think about the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, that's all something that we participate in. He died our, de our death, and he died to sin so that I could die to sin with him. It's not just metaphorical, it's actual, like, it's real, realistic. It actually happened. When I put my faith in Jesus spiritually, I died to my old former way of life, my old nature, which was dead in sin, and I'm come to life, resurrected to a new creation, a new mind, a new heart, a new way of reasoning through life, a new, a new, uh, a new nature, a new life. Okay, so I'm, I'm resurrected. Now, that old way of life, here's how Paul describes it. Your old self 
belongs to your old way of life. Your old self is actually corrupted by your sinful desires because I would give in to them. And my sin corrupted my old self, which is why there's a lot of dying theology in, in the scriptures where it's like, you can't come to, you can't come to God when you're stained by sin. So something has to happen. There's a transaction that has to take place. You have to die to sin to be, to come to life as a new creation with a new identity. That's what Jesus does. So the way Paul describes our old self here is really important. Your old self, it's no longer who you are. Even though you and I did used to sin, and even though I still struggle with sin, I am not defined by my sin. I, I am not defined by my failures or my weakness. I, I am not determined. My identity is not determined, okay, by my own inability to follow God's commands. When I fail, I'm not that failure. When I sin, that doesn't define me. I'm defined by the truth of God's word and what Christ has said about me and what he's done for me. That is what determines who I am. So my old self, which is my old identity and my old standing, that old self is associated with an old way of living. Okay, so it's both. I no longer live like how I used to, and I'm no longer who I used to be. I used to be stained by sin and separated from God and an alien and foreigner and enemy of God, hostile towards God and, and, and under the penalty of sin and, and separated and, and sentenced to hell. I was that in darkness, a child of the devil. I'm no longer that. God changes your identity in order to change your lifestyle, right? So that I now live like who I truly am in Christ. God doesn't ask you to change your life in order to become something. He changes you fundamentally and at the core, your nature, your, you get a new life, a new identity so that now you're positioned and equipped to go and live a life that honors him because your lifestyle flows from who you are and how you think, right? So my mind is governed by the truth of God's word. I'm an, I get a new mind in Christ Jesus. That's the beautiful thing about this. So put off your old self. Paul is telling Christians to put off their old self. And you and I go, Paul, I thought my old self is already gone. You're telling me I got to put that off. So is it gone? Or do I still have to choose to put it off daily? And Paul would say, yes. And you go, that doesn't answer my question, Paul. Is it gone or do I still have to put it off? Paul would agree. Yes. The point is your old self is dead. There is a tendency for me to put that back on as if it still exists. It doesn't. That old self has no bearing on my identity or my standing before God. That old self has no bearing on my value as a person. It doesn't determine who I am, but I can still choose to subject and submit my life to that old self and say, you know what? I'm going to live like how I used to. I'm going to operate as an old person that I used to be. I'm going to identify with my old self and choose to think I'm sinful and think I'm an enemy of God and think I'm somehow under condemnation. You can choose to put on the old self, which doesn't mean it's actually like, uh, really alive or, or 
active. It just means you're choosing to go back to an old way of thinking, an old way of living, and then live like that. Think of it like this, okay? If your old self and your old way of life is a prison cell that you and I were freed from and we walked out in faith and Jesus shut the door, I can still have a tendency to try and go back in there. Doesn't mean I can, right? Jesus shut the door, locked in and said, no, that's no longer who you are. That's gone. That's gone and done. I've set you free. Go and live as, as my child. I can still try and go back to it. It doesn't mean it actually has any uh, weight or power on, my, on me. I can just choose to go back to it. Think about it like this. Uh, if this shirt, i just trying to use as many, many illustrations as I can. I can choose to, when I get up in the morning and I'm like, what am I going to wear today? I can choose to put on whatever shirt I want, okay? Let's just say each of those shirts represents a way of life. Well, I can put on this shirt and live like Jesus. I can put on this shirt and live like Jesus and approve of sin. I can put on this shirt and live like the world and do nothing, have nothing to do with Jesus today. Uh, so you and I get to choose, what am I going to put on in this very moment? Am I going to put on the shirt of my old self and old way of life, even though it's, I can just take it off? Or am I going to put on Christ? Now, here's, the, here's what you have to understand. Whether or not in this moment I choose to put on Jesus or not, choose to put on the world or not, that doesn't determine the verdict God has already made about me. In other words, it doesn't affect my salvation. I know some people are like, hey, um, look at verse 20, 22. Put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, okay? He's telling us to put off our old self. If he's telling Christians they still have the ability to put on their old self, he's not saying they can get unsaved and, and, and walk away from Again, this is just another conversation and lose everything that they have in Christ all of a sudden. The point is, I can choose to think like and operate like I used to. That doesn't change who I am in the sight of God. That doesn't change the salvation I have. That doesn't change what God has declared about me. Okay, the point is, I still have free will to put on the new self and live like Jesus in this moment or lash out in anger and bitterness and, and, and lose my cool and, and operate like the world and how I used to be. There's a moment-to-moment -moment decision, opportunity you and I have to choose to operate like Jesus and function like Him or not. But that momentary decision of, am I going to you know, embody the ways of Jesus or not, that momentary decision doesn't affect your eternal destiny. Okay, you've already placed your faith in Christ. So I don't want people thinking like, oh my gosh, I can't go to heaven unless I every day, every moment put on Christ and reject the old self. No, when Jesus says, look, if you want to come after me, you have to deny yourself. Deny yourself. Jesus says, deny self. Bible verse. It's like in Mark, something like that. Matthew 16, 24. Let's just go to Matthew 16. This is the idea at play here. Jesus said, look, if anyone wants to come after me, that person needs to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. When you sign up 
to follow Christ and you're like, I believe the gospel, you're signing up for self-sacrifice, self-denial, where you're going, I choose to lay me down at the altar and humble myself before Almighty God and do what He wants instead of what my flesh wants. That's a daily battle. Your sinful desires don't leave. Your temptation doesn't leave. We're still in the world, right? We're still in a sinful, broken world that tempts me and the devil's still prowling around. I still have a tendency to sin. That momentary sin doesn't change my eternal standing before God. But it is a failure that Christ atoned for. My, my sin still needed to be paid for by the blood of Jesus. So, look, you and I were taught in Christ to put off our old self. That's part of apparently learning the gospel. I'm just telling you what Paul's saying. He says, look, assuming you've learned Christ and were taught the truth in him, and he says the truth is to put off your old self. The assumption there is when I hear the gospel, I should hear some element of self-denial. I'm not adding Jesus to my current way of living. When you believe in the gospel, you're not adding Jesus to your old way of life, to your life of sin. You're not saying, well, I'll make a space for Jesus, but I still have all this sin I'm okay with. I'm going to live how I want. You don't live how you want. He becomes your way of life. He becomes your new life. Okay? So the point here is, look, when you come to Christ, you're not adding Jesus to your current way of life. He is giving you a brand new way of living so that I've been crucified with him. I have died with him. I've been raised to life, a new creation. And now I'm called to live out this new life. He's called me to, but watch this. He's also equipped me for. He's given me a new mind and a new heart and a new spirit and a new nature and a new life. I'm not unequipped. I'm totally capable of walking out this new life. I can choose to, to put on sin at any given moment. That doesn't change God's eternal verdict about me. That's what some of you need to understand. When you fail momentarily, you didn't reverse God's verdict about you. You didn't change your standing before God. This isn't an excuse to sin because obviously how you think about sin matters. Your heart posture towards sin matters, right? How you feel about sin, whether there's conviction and you're sensitive to the spirit, and you feel it, this, ah, this is not good. That also matters, okay? But the point is, look at verse 23. You should, when you hear the gospel, you should hear some element of self-denial. Self okay, self-denial. You and I can't assume every thought I have is good. Every desire I have is good. Every ambition, every pursuit every single imagination, all my draw, my vision board, everything I've put on that, I can't assume it's all good. What I can do is filter these desires and thoughts and emotions and ambitions, filter them through the scripture, hold them up to the standard of God's word and measure them and say, hmm, does this thought or emotion or feeling or desire line up with who God is and what, he, what he's done and what he's doing and what he wants for me. Okay, that, that's what God has enabled us to do by his spirit. I have the ability now to do the will of God. Now, before Christ, because you were dead in sin, 
The only thing you, can I, you and I could do was do the will of God in terms of believing the gospel. Now that I have, I'm capable of walking out the calling and purpose on my life. I can do what he's asked me to. Whereas before, I couldn't. I didn't have the mind or the reasoning faculty to even like comprehend the depths of what God wants or even have the, the emotional response to what he wants me to do. Okay, so verse 23, I just want you to understand, if you've ever heard the gospel preached and there's no element of lay yourself down, deny sin, forsake your sinful life, it was an incomplete gospel. Because what people are saying when they deliver the gospel and they don't talk about self-denial, they're just saying, look, Jesus just wants a part in your life. You can live how you want. He just wants a little piece of you. And you're like, I can make room for that if I get into heaven. I can do what I want still. I can just attach Jesus' name to my old way of life. Sweet. It's not Christianity. It's sick. And it's sad. And it's sadly approved of by so many churches across the planet. Ugh. This is what Paul's saying. Look, if you learned Christ, you should have learned to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. So watch this. Not only am I daily putting off sin and denying my flesh and choosing not to give in to my sinful tendencies and temptation, simultaneously, I am also being renewed in the spirit of my mind, which means I'm not just saying no to sin, I'm saying yes to God. A lot of people think, look, Christianity is just a lot of things you say no to. Bro, no. I can say no to the wrong thing. <clears throat> My voice didn't crack because I'm hitting puberty. It's because I'm sick. I can say no to the wrong thing and then end up saying yes to a, to a not-so-good thing, right? I can say no to, to, I don't know, stealing, and I can say yes to sitting on, on the couch and watching Netflix for nine hours. Was it good that I chose not to steal? Sure. Was it good that I sat on the couch and wasted nine hours binge-watching a season that I'm going to forget in three months? I wouldn't say that was helpful. It wasn't, not, it wasn't like morally good or bad, but it wasn't beneficial or helpful. I should have said yes to God in terms of, I'm going to go and do what honors you rather than doing something that is just neutral. You know what I mean? Because it's like some people are like, no, Netflix isn't good or bad. Well, what you're watching matters, how you think about it, the level to which it controls you, right? How, how, how controlled you are by it. It matters, okay? But the point is, I'm not just saying no to sin. I'm actually spending time in the scriptures so that my mind is being more and more renewed and transformed into the image of Christ. Just because you have the mind of Christ doesn't mean you are always going to think like him. You have the potential to, and you have the opportunity and the spirit of God to do so. But it's not automatic. When we go, we have the mind of Christ. Therefore, every desire I have and every ambition, every feeling is, is godly. That's the dumbest assumption you could ever make. It's so dumb. You know, you have the mind of Christ to actually filter your thoughts and ideas and feelings and emotions through what you know is true of God, what you know is true of the gospel, right? But I need to grow up. I think of it like this. My son right now is five. He doesn't always think well. I'll just leave it there. He doesn't always reason well. He doesn't always understand appropriately, right? As he matures, 
his ability to reason and understand uh, is going to mature as well. That's the, uh, that's the hope. That's the hope. Knock on wood, right? I pray that my son not just grows up physically in stature, but his mind, his ability to, to process things and understand and relate with people and filter things through, through the truth. I, hopefully, his reasoning faculties and understanding matures as well. So, as believers, we have the opportunity to think more and more like Jesus every day. I have the ability to actually be less vulnerable to sin. And you and I go, no, there's always temptation. I didn't say there's not always temptation. Verse 23 says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Right after Paul says, put off your old self. In other words, your ability to, to deny sin is a direct reflection or is proportionate to how renewed your mind is. How, how much have you meditated on the truth of God's word? How much time do you spend in God's word and in his presence? How, how often are you sitting in the presence of God and letting him go to work and transform your mind and, and help you think like Christ? How often are you doing it? How much maturity have you seen in the way that you think? And it's not on you. It's actually God who does that, but you're the one who actually positions yourself to be renewed by him. God does the renewal. Don't get me wrong. Like he's the one that transforms you. This is more of a passive thing. I'm sitting at the feet of Jesus. What's passively happening to me and what I want to happen is that God is transforming the way that I think. And he's elevating my way of thinking and my understanding, and he's purifying my reasoning faculties with the water of his word. He's washing my mind. If you're not doing that on a daily basis, having your mind renewed, washed by the pure water of God's word, then when sin comes a frickin' knocking on your door, you're going to be more vulnerable to temptation and your willpower won't be as strong as it could have been. My willpower is proportionate to how renewed my mind is. If I want to live like Jesus, I need to learn how to think like Jesus. And if I want a mind like Christ, I need to get in his word so that his truth is being planted and rooted deep in the way that I think. In, in scripture, the mind doesn't just refer to the brain. It actually refers to the heart. Think of the heart and the mind synonymously, just for sake of explanation. Okay, think of the mind and the heart as the operation center of your life. How you talk, how you treat your mom and your dad when you they aggravate you, you know, how you treat coworkers, how you live. That is, that is a result or a product of your mind and heart. So if I purify my mind and my heart, not me, but if I put myself in a position by opening God's word, if I put myself in a position where God is purifying and renewing my mind and heart, then when the flesh tries to creep up and that old way of life comes knocking on your door, 
all be strong, stronger to say no and put off that old self because my mind has been renewed and refreshed to be capable of saying no to that sin. I'm not saying you don't have the opportunity unless you're renewed. I'm saying you're more likely to, you're stronger to, stronger to resist sin when your mind is governed by the truth of God's word. So for those of you that are like, I don't have a devotional, I don't read my Bible, it might sound harsh, you're screwing yourself over. That's like as blunt as I can put it. Like you're screwing yourself over when sin comes knocking on your door. Yes, you have the Spirit of God. Yes, you can say no, but you'll be more likely to say yes to sin because you haven't let the Word of God purify your mind. So this isn't just about saying no. This is about becoming more like Jesus and saying yes to Him daily. Right? Renew my mind, Lord, so I can say no to sin. I don't just want to say no to sin and leave it at that. If I'm not knowing Jesus better, if I'm not growing in holiness, if I'm not becoming more like Christ by spending time at His feet and His Word, what's the point of saying no to sin? Like, yes, you honored God. Yes, you did great. You obeyed. But like, you're not making progress toward Him. You're just staying there. And you're just, it's like, <clears throat> you're not moving forward to God. You're just staying there and, and, and keeping the enemies away. When God's like, no, no, like, like fight off the enemies with my spirit and the, tr and the strength I give you, but make progress toward me. Now, verse 24, here's a, here's a third element. Here's a third element to this thing. Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now, this is what Paul says. Look, he goes, put off your old self. Be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Become more like Jesus in the way that you think. Let God transform your mind. And put on the new self. And you're like, that's three things. That's the trifecta. I could barely do one. And God's going, ah, you got this, buddy. I'll do it with you. We often think like what God calls us to. He's not participating with us. He just leaves us on our own and we're screwed. No, God's with us. He doesn't just equip us to do it. Like, he goes before us. He's with us. His presence is, like, uh, really um, there when we're doing these things. So when he calls you to say no to sin, become more like Jesus, and put on the new self. And you go, that's a lot. And God goes, exactly. Lean on me. Lean on me for the strength to do that. Don't think you can do this in your own strength. Don't think you can become more holy and resist sin and, and, and embody the ways of Christ in your own human willpower. It, it, it's not just about your strength. It's about you admitting weakness so God can be strong through you to actually do this. So put on the new self. Look at how Paul describes the new self. Watch. This is very intentional. I'm going I'm to bring you back to Ephesians 2.10. You guys want to cheat ahead and just go to Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10? Go there and see if you see the connection I'm going to make. Paul says, put on the new self. Put on the shirt. If this shirt said, the ways of Jesus, put it on. Because that new self is created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So whatever this new self is, we know it's righteous. We know it's holy. And we know that it's created after the likeness of God. Go to Ephesians 2.10 now. Thank you, Lord. Clarifying, Lord. Thank you for bringing us here. Ephesians 2.10 says, For we are his workmanship. Amen? 
And then people go, every person on the planet that's ever born is his workmanship. You're a masterpiece. Now, I will say this. God made you intentionally on purpose. I will say this, that you, you're made in the image of God, whether you're a sinner or a saint. Everyone's made in the image of God. But chapter 2, verse 10, when it says we are his workmanship, Paul's talking about the church. Paul's talking about believers. We are his masterpiece. It doesn't mean other people aren't God's masterpiece and they're not wanted and there's no purpose behind them if they're not in Christ. The point is, we as the church, we're a masterpiece created in Jesus for good works. There's the good works. There's the good works that you are, you're straining to do on your own. There's the good works that you're, you're stressing to do. And you're trying to do by yourself without God's help. And you're relying on your own strength and your experience. And you're saying, God, I got this. When God said, no, these good works have been prepared for you to walk in. But I've fitted you for that to rely on me to do it. Some of you are straining and stressing, overwhelmed, burdened by what should be enjoyable. Like walking in the good works God has for us, that should be enjoyable. And some of you are crying in the background because you, you think God's holding you hostage. He's like, you better meet the numbers this week. You think God wants, you know, he's this angry boss that just wants results. And he's just like, give me the results. Come on. And you're like, I'm trying, I'm trying. He's like, come on. If you don't give me enough, you're not getting into my kingdom. And I want to liberate you a little bit. And say, that's not our God. The good works he's ordained for us to walk in are to be enjoyed. Now, I won't always have this overwhelming emotional desire to do what God wants. But I have the ability to do it even though I lack the emotional feeling. And when I do, I can enjoy working alongside God in the earth and advancing his kingdom and co-laboring with Christ. I can enjoy his presence as I participate with God. As I participate with him. The good works God calls you guys to, not only has he equipped you for, not only has he fitted you for, but he's given you the mind and the heart and the new nature to effectively do it. And he's given you his very presence so that you would cling to him the whole way through. If you're going to effectively walk out the good works God has called you to, <clears throat> you're going to need to admit weakness and stop straining and rely more on God than you do on your own intellect, on your own strength. This new self was created after the likeness of God. That's, the, that's what Paul is referring to in Ephesians 2. We're created in Christ Jesus as a masterpiece for good works that we can enjoy. Obedience should be enjoyable. I'm not saying it won't be difficult. I'm not saying it won't be a, 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 you know, this, this really hard struggle at times. It's enjoyable to bring him glory. It's enjoyable to walk in the good works that he's created me for. It's enjoyable to put on the new self and live righteous and live holy. A life of holiness is not burdensome. 
if it's burdensome, you're probably doing it without God's help and you're relying on yourself. What makes it enjoyable is the fact that he's with me hand in hand the whole way through it. It's not even that the good works make it enjoyable. It's God's presence make those good works enjoyable. So put on the new self. Enjoy, watch this, enjoy representing your king well. Enjoy being an ambassador of God. Enjoy being a child of God and just relishing in all that he's done for you. Enjoy him and watch as God leads you into deeper love, deeper enjoyment, deeper satisfaction, deeper peace as you live a life of holiness and righteousness, which by the way, you are fitted for. <clears throat> You're fitted for it. The new life I've been given in Christ, it's actually appropriate for the life he's called me to. So the position I have, the identity I have in Christ, it's appropriate for the life God has called me to. It's fitting. They go hand in hand. God doesn't ask you to live a, a crazy good life now that, you know, before you ever believe. He doesn't tell you to do good works to get into my kingdom. He says, believe, and then I will empower you to do the good works. I'll give you a new heart, a new mind, a new, a new nature, and all that. That's what God does. Beautiful. Okay, verse 25, therefore, having put away falsehood. Now, verse 25 through 31, Paul's going to give you specific ways that you can deny the flesh and put on Jesus and put on his ways. Watch. Verse 25, put away falsehood. Stop lying. Stop being deceitful. Stop cheating and excusing it and saying it's just a small white lie. I think there is a way that lying can actually be for the benefit and the good of another when it's to preserve life and, and all that. But the point is, when it's preserving me and it's for, you know, it's out of fear and it's, it's uh, I don't know, out of pride or, and you're lying and you're deceiving and you're cheating people, look, put that away. Put it away. It's not appropriate for your new life. Let each one of you instead speak the truth with his neighbor. Look at how Paul contrasts these two ideas. He doesn't just say, stop lying. No. He says, hey, stop lying. And instead, use your mouth to speak the truth with people. Use your mouth to declare truth. Don't just stop lying and don't say anything at all. Speak the truth. Change how you talk. Change your language. Change what you use your mouth for. We're members one of another. Remember, chapter 4 is about Paul preserving unity. And he's saying, look, if we're going to be one, if we're going to have love in the church, you guys got to stop lying to each other. You guys got to stop cheating and deceiving. You got to stop like tolerating small white lies. And you got to use your mouth to speak the truth in love. Because remember, that's when the church grows. When we speak the truth in love, we grow up into Christ. Right here. When we speak the truth in love, we grow up in Christ. If you want to help other people grow and, and move them towards Jesus and make their lives better and benefit them, use your mouth to declare the truth of God's word. When you get around people and you're like, well, what are we going to talk about? Bring up God's word. Sharpen each other intentionally. Like, you got to make it awkward. Sometimes that's what it's going to be, okay? 
Sometimes you got to awkwardly insert the word of God and be like, you know, this reminds me of my daily devotional and encourage, sharpen, exhort, right? Convict, use the truth of God's word to bring maturity, bring maturity. Be angry and don't sin. Interesting. So is this an excuse to be angry? I don't think so. He says, be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. So staying angry is an issue. Staying angry is a problem. Being ruled by my anger, right? And giving myself over to anger, not ideal. So I don't think he's saying, hey, be angry. Just don't let it control you. Because how do you stay angry and kind of manage anger without being controlled by it? Let's just think through this. Verse 27, give no opportunity to the devil. Apparently, the kind of being angry here is just an opportunity to sin and not sin itself. Anger is a temptation. The, the initial feeling of anger, that's not sin. Whether I let that anger rule me and govern my decisions, if I submit myself to that anger, now I've actually given myself over to sin because I'm never going to do anything good out of human anger, right? Be angry and don't sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Give no opportunity to the devil. The devil will find an opportunity through your initial anger, that initial response. I, I can't control how I, how I react to what someone else does but I can control whether I let that initial response govern my next decision. I can choose to do away with it or I can choose to come under it. Okay. <clears throat> so don't let anger govern your life. Apparently that's not ideal for the believer. What Christ has created us to do is not to live in anger. So anger is not appropriate for the lifestyle of a loving believer. It doesn't mean there's never going to be any element of righteous indignation and passion and zeal but this is the kind of anger i guess we'll, we'll keep reading okay let the thief no longer steal but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need so watch i love how far paul is taking this he says look don't just stop lying use your mouth to communicate truth don't just stop stealing instead Go and get a job, not just to supply your own needs, but for the purpose of supplying someone else's needs. That's a radical difference. To say, I used to steal. Now I work extra hard so other people have more, <clears throat> have more supply. So other people's needs are met. That's a complete change. Apparently that's appropriate. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth but only what is good for building up. Now, a lot of people will assume corrupting talk here, they'll define it how they want. All I'm saying is corrupting talk defined here in this context, corrupting talk is what tears down. It doesn't fit the occasion. It, instead of it giving grace to those who listen, it doesn't give grace. So here's how we can for sure define corrupting talk. It, um, it pushes against 
here's what we say. If the kind of talk we should engage in builds the church, then the kind of talk we should not engage in, that's what tears down the church. <clears throat> so just ask yourself, this doesn't have to be, this can be swear words, this can be certain jokes, this can be like saying something under your breath or, or choosing to say that when you know you shouldn't have. You know, anything I say that it is going to tear down and is intended to tear down, like goes against the growth of that person. Like think of it like this. If you're trying to grow in Christ, I should compliment that growth and I should do what encourages that. Apparently, I can say things that, that, um, can't think of the words because I'm sick. I can say things that push against that growth and slow it. And Paul's saying, don't let that kind of talk come out of your mouth. Let your words give grace to those who hear and build up, strengthen, edify, encourage. <clears throat> That's a good way of, of, of knowing, hey, should I say this or should I not? Well, is it going to encourage? Is it going to move them more closer to Jesus? Is it going to give grace to them? Is it going to uh, you know, stimulate their mind to think more on Christ? Is this going to encourage growth in them? If not, don't say it. There are some words that you're like, well, it's not going to do anything bad. Well, if it's unhelpful and it's useless, why say it at all? You know, and there are some ways that you can legalistically take this too far. But the point is, I think as a church, we can at least be more mindful about what we say and have a higher standard for the words we let come out of our mouths. Don't be legalistic, but don't have such a low standard that you tolerate things that God's like, that's not, a, that's not okay. And don't grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Now, to grieve here is just to sadden, to disappoint. It's not the Spirit of God's like, you know what? I'm out. You grieve me. I'm leaving you. It's not what's happening here. Because actually, Paul clarifies, well, you're sealed with the Spirit for the day of redemption. So if Paul wants to let us know, hey, the Spirit of God might leave you, he wouldn't have tagged that on. That'd be unnecessary. That'd push it. That kind of... Um, uh, work against what he's trying to do. He says, look, you were sealed for the day of redemption, which apparently is a coming day when we're all going to stand before God and we'll be fully, like, we'll see the full realization of our redemption, right? That's coming. And the Spirit of God guarantees that for me. He's the sign. He's the down payment. He's the assurance that on that day, I'm going to stand redeemed. Now, I can still grieve the Spirit of God inside of me. I can still disappoint him by not doing what was honoring to him. I, I can choose not to submit myself to the leading of the Spirit and do what honors him, and I can choose to grieve him. That doesn't change the fact that I'm sealed for the day of redemption. It just means don't do it, you dummy, you know? And apparently this grieving of the Spirit is connected to letting corrupting talk come out of my mouth. At least that's the flow of the statement. Is Paul saying, look... Don't use your mouth to corrupt people. Don't use your mouth to tear down and work against the growth God is bringing in their life. When you do that, it grieves the Spirit of God. You're working against the work of God in His church. God's not just working in your life, working in the lives of your brothers and sisters. 
you should complement that instead of t push against it, instead of working against it. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Malice is like this ill will when you desire something evil towards someone. Wrath, anger, clamor, bitterness, slandering is speaking, tearing someone down with your words, like kind of gossiping. <clears throat> Slander is to speak evil about someone. Uh, malice is to have evil will about someone. And Paul's saying, let all of that be put away from you. And anger here is included. So if there was a good kind of anger, Paul would clarify. Now, he, you might say, well, he's saying like any kind of fleshly, human, that sinful nature kind of anger. Well, I would say he doesn't specify. He just says, let all anger, bitterness, wrath, clamor, slander be put away from you, along with all malice. So I will tell you, when we go back to verse 26, it seems as though he's not giving you an excuse to be angry and be like, as long as I honor God with this anger. He's saying, the minute you recognize anger, do away with it. If you don't, if you don't, uh, you find yourself in trouble. Now we can get into like the, the, the nuanced discussion on this of, well, is there godly anger, righteous anger, holy indignation? I think there's something that's appropriate for God, but not necessarily... I don't know if I can say that's okay for me. And we could have a conversation from you know, another time. I got to end here because in about eight minutes, we're jumping on a Zoom call. Verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. There it is. To wrap it all up, look, just when you put on Christ, you'll be kind, you'll be tenderhearted, like understanding and soft-hearted towards people, you'll be forgiving. You won't harbor bitterness and unforgiveness. This is how God has forgiven you. So why would you not think it, that forgiveness is appropriate for you as well? Like you should forgive other people if God has forgiven you. And this is wrapping up this idea of unity. When, when believers are putting away wrath and anger, when believers are using their words to communicate truth that builds the church. When believers are kind and forgiving and they don't harbor bitterness, you're going to see unity in the church. You know what's inappropriate for Christians? Bitterness. When you're bitter towards someone and you sit in that and you let it seep. When you're wrathful, when you're angry and you, you let that anger control you. When you slander people with your words, that's inappropriate for the new life. God has given you. It's unreasonable. What is reasonable and appropriate is forgiveness and tenderheartedness and kindness. And that is the end of Ephesians chapter 4. Great work, everyone. We did it. I didn't cough too much. I wasn't too congested. We did it. So what we're going to do in six minutes is we're going to jump on a Zoom prayer room call. Everyone is welcome to join unless you're a troll. Trolls are not welcome. Disrespectful people, not welcome. But we're going to pray with one another, talk through this fellowship. If you're looking for um, godly fellowship and community, this is the place for you. Uh, the Zoom link is in the, my TikTok bio. Just click my TikTok profile. Or if you're on YouTube, it's in the description below. Click the Zoom link. And the password is Jesus. It's really simple. It could not be more simple. 
Click my TikTok profile picture. You'll be on my profile. <coughs> Click the link and you'll see Zoom. Password is Jesus. And then you'll be on the Zoom call. We're going to jump on in five minutes. Whatever your time is, uh, add five minutes. And uh, you don't have to show yourself. You don't have to talk. You can just be there to enjoy and be encouraged and get prayer. Um, if you have prayer requests, bring those here. And if you didn't already know, this is an online ministry. This is the way that I support my wife and two kids. So if you would like to um, visit our website, abovereproachministry.com, that's where you can find everything about this ministry, our YouTube channel, our podcast, um, the free Bible study courses that we're putting out. Uh, I kind of, I'm revamping the Bible study program. Instead, there's online courses that you can now take. And what those courses are designed to do <clears throat> On the website is to help you trace a key word throughout the book of Ephesians <laughs> and then allow you to look outside the book and really give you a holistic view of that word. So for those of you that don't know, every week I'm going to try and release a free online course, a free Bible study course, as well as a free devotional kind of commentary around that key word. Not only will you have an online course to, to build your Bible study skills and develop your skill sets, but there's also going to be a commentary I released that complements that. And so you should see that every week, uh, starting next week. And then on the website, you can find my book, Fruitful. Boom. Our Discord community, which I encourage you all to get involved. Like, get in the Discord community. We have voice chats and discussions, and we bring prayer, and it's awesome. It's such a good, godly community. As well as um, you can find uh, my Instagram and hit me up personally. Message me. So... We're going to jump on the Zoom call in four minutes. Password is Jesus. The link is in my profile or in the description below if you're on YouTube. Uh, don't miss it. It's wonderful and godly, and it'll encourage you and sharpen you. And if you have prayer requests, come and get prayer. All right, guys, I'll see you in a few minutes. Oh, if, if you'd like to support this ministry, you can do so through Cash App, PayPal, or Venmo, or you can become a monthly supporter where there's exclusive benefits. Um, you get access to my teaching notes and sermon material. As I release it, discount codes on our church merch right here, um, as well as uh, what else? A free copy of my book and stuff like that. So you can be a monthly supporter and there's all kinds of good stuff. I'll see you guys in the Zoom call. Three minutes. If you're watching this later on YouTube in the future, I'm sorry. There is no Zoom call. It was in the past. But um, you can watch one in the future. All right, guys. See you soon.